0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from Hebrew College's Shulman Graduate School of Jewish Education. In their master's degree program, learn to engage diverse Jewish communities and develop expertise to address pressing contemporary issues. The program can be completed online from anywhere in the world or on campus just outside of Boston. Generous scholarships are available. Learn more and reflect back on Passover by downloading the article The Four Neurodivergent Children by Rachel Figuera-Smith at www.hebrewcollege.edu unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 168, American Musar. Welcome back everyone, I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And today we're continuing our seven week period called the Omer, where we're trying to dive into a bunch of ideas that we think are really interesting and not talked about that much in the Jewish world. Today we're following up on last week's conversation about Musar with David Jaffe, with another writer on Musar, Greg Marcus. Last week, we looked at the topic of Musar with David Jaffe, who is an ordained rabbi, a professional Jewish educator, and someone who has been studying Judaism for many, many years and put a lot of his ideas together into his book and into his work. Today's guest, Greg Marcus, never set out to be a Jewish professional, a Jewish educator, and he's still not a rabbi. He has a PhD from MIT and worked for 10 years as a marketer in Silicon Valley. As we'll discuss in our interview... At a certain point, Greg was exposed to the ideas of Musar, and he quickly went from being a learner to being a teacher, and ultimately put his ideas together to create American Musar, a 21st century spiritual practice for an authentic and meaningful life for Americans. Greg offers guidance on how to lead a life of mindful harmony and spiritual integrity, drawing upon Jewish teachings and contemporary wisdom alike. Greg Marcus has written a book called The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance Through the Soul Traits of Musar, which is kind of a guidebook to American Musar. Greg has left that world of Silicon Valley marketing behind, and today he is a writer, speaker, workshop facilitator, and stay-at-home dad for two teenage daughters. Greg is an extraordinary example of what we call the regular Jew who has the chutzpah in a good way. To look at the Jewish world, say, I don't have to do things exactly as other people have told me, and to go through it all and mine it for what's meaningful to him and put it together in a new way, and to do so so successfully that he's able to then share that with others. What Greg is doing is really what Judaism Unbound is all about. It's what we've been encouraging ourselves and you to do from the beginning, to feel that license to mine the Jewish tradition, remix it, and build something that is an experiment that we put out into the world and and see how it goes. I should also thank Greg for one other service that he's done for Judaism Unbound. He's taken some of that old Silicon Valley marketing skills and led the process of our survey that you may have participated in. So if you did participate in that survey, you have Greg to thank. And uh, we're all still working on processing all of that. So stay tuned for the information about where we're going to take all of what we learned in the survey. In the meantime, today, we're going to focus on American Musar, and we hope that it helps you put a set of ideas together this coming Shavuot and really have a a more meaningful Jewish year next year. So, Greg Marcus, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you on. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Greg, we're really excited to have you on as somebody who is actually the founder of a new approach to Jewish spirituality for our times. And it's built, of course, as most Jewish innovations are and should be on what's come before. But you have created a particular approach to the idea of Musar, which we talked about recently with David Jaffe, called American Musar. And we really want to jump into what that's all about, But before we do, I really want to get a little bit of your story, because I think that your story is very important for our perspective as Judaism Unbound, where we've talked a lot about the capacity of people who are not rabbis, people who are not deeply educated in in Jewish leadership through some formal institution to come forward and say, I have a contribution to make. And so I'd really love to hear the story of how you came from where you started to starting American Musar.
2: Uh, Let me take you back 12 years to when I was 40. At the time, I was a, a marketer in the corporate world. I was in the genomics industry, and things were going great for me. I had a product that was very successful, but the problem was I was so dedicated to my work that I became a workaholic. I was working 90 hours a week. It was negatively impacting my health, it was impacting my relationships with my family and my two young kids. And then I became the scapegoat for a product launch that went bad, which entailed being publicly humiliated by the president of my company. And then my grandmother passed away. And this is someone who I was very close with. And I almost skipped her funeral. And I actually negotiated to delay the funeral a day so I could, quote, finish my work. It was with this background and feeling really down that I went into Yom Kippur that year. And I was, a, I was probably a twice a year synagogue Jew, Um, but I took the high holidays very seriously. And At about three in the afternoon, they were chanting Torah, and I glanced down at the translation, and these words jumped out at me, don't turn to idols or molten things. And my first reaction was extremely dismissive. I'm thinking, hey, my life is falling apart here, and this is exactly what's wrong with Judaism. We're fixated on something which went out thousands of years ago. And then this phrase popped into my head and it said, you need to do what's best for the company. And when I heard that, my stomach clenched and my palms got sweaty and I started thinking about the nature of a corporation and I had all these thoughts and connections and I realized that I had turned my employer into a false idol. And doing what's best for the company, that was our rationalization phrase. And it's not doing what's best it's very different than doing what's best. And I decided that day I needed to start reconnecting with Jewish values. I needed to get my life back on track. And within a year, I'd cut my hours by a third without changing jobs. And I, well, I didn't realize it at the time, um, that was my story at the age of 40, like Rabbi Akiva, where I began a spiritual path, where I began bringing Jewish values into my life on an everyday basis, not in terms of Keeping Shabbat or lighting candles or going to services, but in terms of putting people first in my life, and that was really got is what what got me started on this path.
0: Well, I love that connection to Rabbi Akiva because I translated an Israeli novel about Rabbi Akiva, and one of the most important ideas of of him is that he only started to learn at the age of forty. Before then, he was a poor shepherd who hadn't learned anything about Judaism, and he came and be and ultimately became a very important figure in rabbinic Judaism and somebody that we look back now over the last 2000 years and see as, uh, yeah, that was okay that somebody could only start learning at 40. So how did you get from that uh, place of openness to Judaism and that looking for looking for elements of Judaism that that you did connect to while at the same time not becoming a traditionally observant Jew. I mean first of all, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that process about how you look back on what you did. It sounds like, you know, you were kind of we could call it, you know, picking and choosing, we could call it some version of um, you know, maybe there's some tech metaphor for this, you know, when when uh, when we can go back and kind of mine uh something that's kind of fallen apart for the pieces that are still good. So I'd love for you to reflect on that a little bit. But also, I'd love to understand how you moved from that experience to specifically the the area of Musar and why that, that spoke to you. And what was the process for your uh, starting to to learn about this and then then becoming a, a teacher of it before you really created the approach that you call American Musar?
2: Like many people my age, I think I had kind of a crappy Jewish education. I did become bar mitzvah, but, um, you know, it was it was something that I'm very proud of. But in my synagogue, you didn't give a teaching about Torah, you gave a speech, which was a speech about whatever. And in one or two lines, you summarized the Parsha. I didn't even know what a Parsha was till five or 10 years ago. So it was just really, and what I missed out on was the, the richness of our Jewish tradition. Now, as an adult, I actually had a great adult Jewish education. I'm a member of Congregation Beth Am in Los Altos Hills, California. The rabbis there are wonderful about bringing in, here's a Torah portion, and here's what Rashi says, and here's what this other commentator says, and then here's what a Protestant minister says, and here's a Shakespeare connection. And so that really opened my eyes that this was an ongoing dialogue. My family decided not to send our kids to traditional Sunday school because I didn't want them to get a crappy Jewish education the way I did. We did something that was called Shabbaton, which was a family education program where all four of us went, and my wife, who wasn't Jewish, she could learn a little bit, and myself, I could learn a little bit more. And it was in Shabbaton that one year the theme was, was Musar. And I, really, I said, this is going to change my life. Uh, The way that I stopped working all the time was through a series of small, gradual changes. And that's exactly the way Musar works. So I said, this is going to change my life. And then I did nothing for two years. And I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it and kind of suffering along and continuing to make mistakes. And finally, it almost got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. And I went to one of our rabbis, Rabbi Sarah Weissman, and I said, I want to teach Musar at the synagogue. And she said, that's great. And I said, and I need to learn Musar first. And she said, that's wonderful. And she had some money and she paid for me to take an online class from the Musar Institute called Everyday Holiness. And I loved it. And I started reading every Musar material that I could find. And just two months after I started the class, uh, started taking that class, I was facilitating my own class. And it was, you know, 10 or 12 people, most of whom were friends of mine who had no idea kind of what this was about. But they said, hey, we'll throw Greg a bone and we'll kind of go to his thing. But it was incredible. There was such an energy in the group. And I was like, you know, two inches, you know, more learned than everybody else. And we had such an amazing energy that after five, everybody said, let's keep going. And so we did five more. And then we did five more. And after three years, I had a big pile of notes and a big pile, you know, I'd experimented and I felt like I was onto something and I had enough info to put it all together and write a book.
1: I am genuinely super intrigued at the idea of American Musar on a few fronts. One is, I, I think that in particular, there is this long tradition of Musar that you know, traces its roots to, to Europe, and David Jaffe even argued that it traces its roots farther back into ancient Jewish texts. But taking all of that and, and mapping it onto a 21st century American context is a, is a really, it's a cool effort, and, and it's something that you're doing. So I wanted to ask about that. And also more broadly, I wanted to name that, like, I think that's something we need to do generally with, with Jewish ritual, we seem to have inherited all sorts of observances from various areas of the world and, and we're doing them in America now, but I don't know that people have consciously on all that many occasions been like, you know what, we're going to make a version of this that is ours, that is actually kind of new and American for our context. And it reminds me of... A, a very early conversation in our podcast with Anita Diamond, where she talked about Minhag America and where she was quoting Isaac Mayer Wise, um, the, the 19th century rabbi who w- was doing that. He really wanted to create sort of a, a custom, a Minhag, a, a whole universe of Judaism that would be American. And so I think American Musar has echoes of that. And so I wanted to hear from you both, sort of, what is it and, and what is it doing that's both taking elements of of Musar from the past, and also, you know, creating new forms of it, and more broadly to the extent that you're you're interested in schmoozing about this too, like, what does it mean to make an American version of a, of a time-honored Jewish ritual generally?
2: To give you a little context, one of the ways that I think about Musar is it's spiritual practical, and so I can give a practical answer for why I started it and a spiritual answer. And the practical answer is I wrote the book right after the Pew survey results came out in 2013 and I very much wanted to make musar accessible to that 70% of the American Jewish population who wasn't part of a synagogue and I know this is something you know you guys talked about a lot you had a whole series about this so it's how could I do something that really spoke to those people so that's the practical aspect The spiritual aspect is that I was at a a Musar Kala, which is a Musar gathering, and we were doing a meditation, and I was deeply meditating, and it came to me during that meditation that I should call it American Musar. And as I thought about it, I thought that that really fit like in Ben Franklin's autobiography, he talked about 13 virtues and how you could focus on different virtues, different weeks. That was very much influenced one of the most influential Musar books called Heshbon Hanefesh. And interestingly, he does not reference Franklin in the book because he was afraid that the Jews in Europe would not want to take an American Gentile's practice to be a part of it. But in his private letters, he said, yes. You know, there's this very clever American named Benjamin Franklin who came up with something really cool. And so I felt just intuitively and cognitively that let's just own this and let's see where it takes us. So now that brings us to the question is well, what is American Mosar? And I think that there are really three principles that I tried to espouse. The first one was talking about Jewish values. It's not about prayers and rituals. It's about how do these teachings show up in everyday life. So the second principle is I wasn't going to use any Hebrew words, even in transliteration, except for the word musar itself. The reason why I made that that conscious decision is as a marketer and I was getting ready to write the book, I talked to a bunch of people who are unaffiliated and I wasn't surprised that Hebrew was a barrier. But what did surprise me was that Hebrew caused shame. They didn't feel Jewish enough, and I realized that I had suffered some of that shame. And that Shabbaton program, one of this wonderful rabbi, she always said Kol HaKavod this and Kol HaKavod that, and for five years I was too embarrassed to ask her what it means. And now I know it means all the honor or props to you. But so instead of saying Kol HaKavod, and if you're in the know. You'll figure out what this is, or Kolhakavod. Parentheses, props to you. I'm just going to say props to you. And the third issue that came up, again, not surprisingly, was God. That people were very uncomfortable with God language, and so I very specifically said I provide alternatives to God talk. I don't keep the divine out, but if I make, I don't. I try not to use the word God. I try to use the word divine or divinity. The last thing I'll say about American Musar as an approach is that I feel that I have standing to talk about this because I do this practice very actively. Like I am on a journey myself, and it's my job to be transparent about my journey and then to put my hand out to invite other people. And this is something which goes all the way back. If you look at the first Musar book, Duties of the Heart by Baha Ibn Pakuda, in the introduction, he says, I am going to use this book as a yardstick for my own behavior. So this is something that we actively do. It's not like another tech study where we sort of look at this and think about things intellectually. It's like, "Hmm, how can I bring this inside and feel this in my kishkis to really show up as a better person in my own life?
0: I think that as American Jews, we've often been acculturated to somehow believe that, you know, the real Judaism happened back uh, over somewhere in Europe or the Middle East, and that what's happening here is some kind of pale shadow of it, as opposed to the, the possibility that actually something that happened here was highly influential in the development of that approach to Judaism that you might have looked at from Europe 200 years ago and imagine like that that's the that's the real Judaism that's the most authentic and to find out that it kind of is sourced in Benjamin Franklin is kind of mind blowing Uh, So I I just kind of want to reinforce that, because for me, that was especially significant. And and it also asks you to wonder, well, what else from America influenced people back in Europe? And more importantly, what principles of America influence us today in America that are just as authentic to bring into Judaism as as they ever were? But I, I think that at this stage... Uh, I really want to kind of get a little bit more into the guts of what Musar is about, what a Musar practice is all about, specifically an American Musar practice is, as you have it. So can we start with uh talking a little bit about the kind of um basic assumptions I think that Musar is built around that you talk about in your book having to do with the soul? And then also uh to give a few examples perhaps of some of the ways that this translates into daily practices, into how how do we actually go about the process of practicing musar as opposed to just thinking about it?
2: My background as a marketer in business is we used to do these financial forecasts where we would make assumptions. And in a financial forecast assumption, you'd say, okay, 100 people come in the store an hour, they each spend $10. So I'm going to assume that we're going to make $1,000 an hour. Now, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but by making those assumptions, I can make decisions about the business. So I said, well, what assumptions would I come up with? And in maybe 15 minutes, I came up with four assumptions. They have not changed at all. Um, These, I think, are really good backstory if you don't have any Jewish literacy, if you make these assumptions. The first one is that we all have the same soul traits, but different amounts of each. Second, that we all have free will, but it's not always accessible to us. Third is that we have an internal battle between the good inclination and the evil inclination. And the fourth is that we all have a divine spark, which is occluded by our baggage. I think this idea that we all have the same soul traits, but different amounts of each, I'm going to explain that one a little bit more because that's the, most, the one that's most fundamental to Musar. So for Hebrew speakers in the audience, the, the term is midah, singular, midot, plural, which literally translates as measure. So these are different parts of the soul. Um, they are character traits like humility, trust, patience. And what we find is that if we were to look across, and I realized recently that I take kind of a population geneticist's view of this. If we look across the population of humans, we naturally are going to fall at different places along this spectrum. And having too much of a particular soul trait is just as bad as having not enough. So for example, if we take a soul trait like patience, if we have too little patience, we're gonna be angry and frustrated all the time, and that's not good. But if we have too much patience, we're gonna have this tendency towards being static. We're gonna stay in a bad job, we're gonna stay in a bad relationship, we're not going to be taking action when we need to be taking action.
1: You just used a phrase that could easily just float on by a listener, float on by somebody. You said that you take a population geneticist's view of this. And that is not what every guest on our podcast says. So I want to play with that more because what you didn't quite say as directly is that you are actually a trained biologist, that you, you have a PhD in biology. And that is very cool to me as somebody who has never come remotely close to anything like that and who struggled in ninth grade biology class. But I want to ask ways in which that part of you is not absent in this work. Too often we do this segmenting in our, in our heads of, you know, Religion over here, science over there. We talked about this with Jeff Middleman when, when we, he's the, the founder of an organization called Sinai and Synapses, which, which blurs consciously the ideas of religion and science. Um, but how is it that that background is relevant to you? And like, is there a backstory to how maybe that fa- like maybe, is there a way in which if you weren't a, a, a biologist, like maybe you wouldn't have come to this work?
2: Yeah, you know, I've always been baffled by people who say that um, science and spirituality can't coexist. And part of that is, you know, my father was a, a musicologist by training, and he always said that at the highest levels, science and the arts or science and philosophy are asking the same questions because you get into very esoteric realms about trying to understand the way the world is. And now I can look back at like my time where I was a very serious scientist. I had a lot of publications and I would be doing this experiment and I would think about myself as like in King David's army, you know. Pushing back the frontiers and smiting, you know, the evildoers, which is kind of—I imagine there aren't a lot of bench scientists who are kind of having like fantasies like that at eleven o'clock at night while you're, you know, grinding through the experiments. And I'm just kind of um, now—I had a science reunion, and just now I'm sort of realizing how all of those threads have come into play. Because as much as I'm trying to innovate, um, you know, my book has 240 references in it. So it's not Hmm. like, you know, I know how to write a paper, I know how to do research, I know how to synthesize disparate pieces of information, because as a scientist, it's like, oh, we get a little piece of data over here, and you get a little piece of data over there. And hmm, maybe we should investigate in this direction. But at the same time, I didn't come up with four hypotheses. You know, I came up with four assumptions. You know, hypothesis is something that you test. And I think I'm really happy that I did that because I don't have to get into arguments with people who say, oh, you say you have a divine spark that's occluded by your baggage. Well, this little piece over here is inconsistent with that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of pieces inconsistent with all kinds of things. That's like, welcome to Judaism. But if we make this assumption, we can engage. we can engage in this thousand-year-old dialogue with our ancestors and with the people who've come before, and we can put our hat in the ring. This is what I this is how I see it. What do you think, Rashi?" So, to answer your question, I don't know where I'd be. Well, I know that if I hadn't become a scientist, I wouldn't be where I am today. I don't know where I'd be, but it's certainly my life would have taken a very different path.
0: I'm thinking about uh, you as a scientist, and uh, you know, I'm sort of thinking about the, the difference between, like if somebody came around and said, you know, well, I don't have any training in biology, but uh, I want to throw my hat in and and start, uh, you know, start throwing out some of my ideas about evolution or whatever. You know, it feels like in the realm of science, we have this, these kind of high barriers to entry, like, no, you're supposed to get a PhD, you know, and, and there are good reasons for that. And yet, right, I'm, One of the biggest advocates to say that that's not how we should be looking at it in Judaism, but I'm curious if you have a a perspective on that, or if you if you uh, think that actually science would be better off if more people rolled up their sleeves and tried to make a contribution to science, or and or if you think that uh, Judaism and, and science are sort of different in those ways, and if you could talk a little bit about how you see them as different.
2: I'm reminded of one of my favorite books is Joseph Tolushkin's book Rebbe about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. and he used to send, you know, oh, there's no Jews in Fairbanks, Alaska, and he sends, would send the young Jewish couple, go open a Chabad house, and they'd say, we don't, we're not rabbis, we don't know anything. And his answer was, if you only know Aleph and Bet, which are the two, two first letters of the Hebrew alphabet, then teach them Aleph. So um, I found that very reassuring because um, maybe I know three or four letters, but those letters that I know about, I'm very comfortable. So I think in in Judaism, we're we're a people of lifelong learning. And if you want to engage in the learning, you know what what's different about Musar though is you don't learn for the sake of learning. You learn for the sake of personal growth. And so I think the barrier should be extremely low. And I think it's part of our job as leaders in the Jewish community to kind of make those barriers as low as possible. If your issue is you don't even know where to begin, well, guess what? We are taught how to deal with that in the Passover Seder. We have uh, a lesson uh, from Passover about what to deal with someone who doesn't know how to ask a question. In the story of the four children, there's one question which is, well, what about the, the child who doesn't know what to say? And the answer is, well, tell them that um, the Lord delivered us with, from, with a mighty hand from Egypt. So, you know, it's one of really basic, simple concept so we can give very basic simple concepts for people to begin to chew on
0: i'm curious about just one one more question about the distinction between judaism and science or judaism and other sort of realms where people imagine that it's important to be a professional to be a uh you know fully to have studied everything and cuz i think that a lot of jews think about judaism that way a lot of rabbis i think are trained to think about judaism that way that Judaism is like science. There is a system, it is a body of knowledge that until you've gained some level of mastery, you shouldn't be in the business of teaching it. And you shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be in the business of mucking with it, you know, of changing it, of picking and choosing within it. And and I very much, you know, I'm also trained, by the way, as a scientist and as a biologist. And I, I definitely have this like deep sense that, that, that Judaism is not like science. But it would be wonderful if you could kind of help us uh, understand a little bit about, as you see it, why they're not similar.
2: Science has real-world consequences, and I do shudder that there's more of these kind of do genetic engineering in your garage kind of kits that are coming out. And if you, like, genetically engineer some mosquito and then release it into the world, you know, that could be, oops, I accidentally created an ultra-virulent malaria-carrying mosquito resistant to all pesticides, you know, oops. You know, that is um, much harder to do in in Judaism, I guess you could come up. You could weaponize, as one of your previous guests said, some piece of text that could really catch on and have some hurtful effect in the society. But you can battle that with other words. Whereas, if you really muck with biology, um, you could you could really do some damage. At the at the same time, though, I do think uh, I'm a real believer in the liberal arts education. I'm not a believer in specializing. You know, I was a biology major, but I had a Bachelor of Arts, and I do think it's very dangerous when our government is making decisions about medicines, about the environment, about other things, for people not to have some basic level of science literacy, so that they can make informed decisions as voters and as human beings.
1: Can you give us a little bit of a riff on how American Musar could play into precisely these issues that you're talking about with biology?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at one of the soul traits, which is the soul trait of humility. Now, with humility, we need to unlearn some of the things we've learned in the Western world about what it means to be humble, because it sort of has this connotation of being meek and self-effacing. In Musar, humility is about occupying your right space in the universe, because if we are too humble, um, we are... um, you know, we're not, we might have some important job to do in the world. And so part of like, if I were not science literate, which I am, um, and I was practicing humility, I might say, oh, geez, you know, they're debating um, outlawing uh, genetically modified organisms. And I don't know anything about this. But these people are making a decision on my behalf, part of my proper place in the universe is to just understand this issue a little bit. Let me go to Wikipedia. Let me go read or watch a couple videos and just understand what this is really about. If I am uh, hearing that, you know, my city council might want to outlaw buildings that are over four stories high, I'd say, okay, well, it's part of my member of the community. Like, I need to occupy the space. I need to step up and gain some little bit of literacy in this issue so that I can... I'm do my duty as a citizen and speak out on this.
1: So one of the tools that you offer that I think is really spectacular is this inventory tool for people to utilize for themselves with respect to these soul traits. And I don't want to do too much spoiler stuff, so I want to let you lay out what that is. Um, Talk to us about this inventory process and why it's a worthwhile exercise for people to apply as they're hopping their way into American Musar.
2: So one of the traditions that we got from Ben Franklin is that we study soul traits in groups of 13, and that allows us to um, cycle through over the course of the year. So if I study each, if I practice each soul trait for two weeks at a time, at the end of 13 soul traits, that's 26 weeks, and then I can repeat the same 13 for the second half of the year. So my book, like many books, I picked 13 soul traits that I thought were particularly relevant for American Jews and non-Jews for where they are today. And to help get you started, I created a quiz. I call it the Soul Trait Profile Quiz, where you can go in and evaluate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 for each of these 13 soul traits, and then it creates a little graph. It creates a spider graph where... There are 13 spokes, and if you're low in the trait, you get a point towards the middle, and if you're high in the trait, you get a point towards the outside, and then you get a little dotted line in the middle, which represents our divine spark. That's, that's our aspirational goal, and this is surprising to many people because you might think, you know, I want to have as much truth as possible, so when you get a score like I did the first time when I took it, I created a nine. Oh, really good in truth oh, that's, that's actually out of balance. I am giving too much truth. I'm being un- unnecessarily harsh. I've lost sight of kindness, and I'm not using judgment about speaking my own truth. So it's a wonderful exercise to kind of begin the process of examining your own internal landscape and can give you some real surprises and hints about some areas where you might need some work.
0: Yeah, that idea of the spectrum really spoke to me. And now I can't remember if this was something that you wrote directly or something that I picked up on or I thought when I was reading what you wrote about. But you talked about how the Torah says that Moses was the most humble man ever to live. And... um, and and you know that's often something that that people grapple with because they say you know well how could he be the most humble man who ever lived he says a lot of things that aren't so humble or how could he be the most humble man who ever lived and and still be an effective leader or whatever and at least what struck me and I and I, I can't remember if you said this directly was maybe it's not so good to be the most humble man who ever lived you know that 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 we think of that as a compliment but maybe it's actually just a description. Of Moses's character that is a mixed bag and and so it was fascinating to me to kind of think about that in terms of one of the most extreme examples given in in Jewish sources about somebody who is sort of said to particularly embody one what we may call soul trait and and that was really effective in kind of registering the the idea for me and um and and I just love the idea that that it's even though people assume that the goal is to get better and better and better at something there there's actually a, a a point at which you can go too far and and I guess I'd love to get your sense also is it is it kind of one of these things where if you get better and and better at one trait you you pot- potentially get worse and worse at others because you know your attention gets focused only on one trait or you know how how do you how do you live in the be- or, or like what's the aspirationally how do you kind of live in the the best balance what does it look like to sort of get it right
2: well one of the you bring up a really important point um and I'll, with what you said at the end one of the reasons why we rotate through traits every you know some people do it for one week some people do it for a month i for me personally the sweet spot is to rotate every two weeks is that we don't want to get stale you know you always want it to be fresh and if you did only focus on one trade at a time, I think there might be some risk that you would Uh, overdo it and that you would lose sight of something else. So by by rotating, we constantly keep it fresh. And also there are things which, you know, I didn't think patience was an issue for me. And if I were just picking and choosing, I never would have worked on patience. But actually I discovered like 10 seconds into working on patience that it was a huge issue for me. (laughs) And that's a very common human occurrence that we all have our own blind spots. So just by following the program, we get we, we get an opportunity to see into those blind spots. But if we're doing and, and if we're doing the practice in that way, um, we're balancing each trade a little bit. It's kind of like, I don't know how you balance tires on a car, but I imagine, okay, I fixed the left one and okay, now I got to tweak the right one a little bit. And oh, okay, now the left one needs a little bit more tweaking. So as we work through these same traits again and again, we're constantly tweaking and we're sort of slowly moving towards balance um, in a holistic way. Because we call, I mean, I we call these things Midot in Hebrew, or we call them soul traits or character traits in English. But the reality is, is that they're not actually different things. They're just parts of the soul, but the soul is beyond our ability to grapple with as a whole. So we create what, in my opinion, is a useful fiction that there is something called the soul trait. And by focusing on that, um, or as one of my students called it, it's like extreme spiritual fitness. You know, today I'm working on my arm muscles and tomorrow I'm working on my leg muscles. And it helps us um, uh, make something that would be really intractable, something that's extremely tractable.
1: Yeah, I I really love what you said about uh I, well first I I was reflecting on the question about humility and maybe it's not so good for Moses to be the most humble. I I was thinking of the the basketball player Wilt Chamberlain who took a season and decided he was going to lead the league in assists. Um and it was actually very selfish. Um he like wouldn't take wide open shots and he would pass to his teammates specifically so that he would be able to say at the end of his career, like he led the league in points lots of times, like, oh, that he also had this year where he led the league in assists. Um, so I think that there's something there about being far too humble, or even where the humility feels like humility, but it's actually coming from a from a place of selfishness. So I wanted to name that. Um, and in that spirit, I'd, I'd love to hear more examples of of how this how of how this looks. So, when when you take one of these soul traits, I mean maybe you can give us a couple. Um what does it look like to take I don't know, the trait of bravery or the trait of um selflessness, selfishness if we're working on the the negative side of that. What does it look like to take um any of these and and go through that process of of Working on it over a two week period over a however long period, and sort of work to see some progress there
2: yeah, so maybe what i 'll do is i 'll start with um, a slightly easier example, which is which is patience. I had um, a wonderful student um, and friend. Uh, her name was Sharon Delman, who unfortunately um, died very unexpectedly uh, at a young age, but she was someone who came in because she was a friend of mine. She wasn't sort of looking for, you know, I think spirituality. It was more like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. And she she took the practice, you know, very seriously in that when we got to patience, you know, she would write. Uh, so if you're practicing, what you do is you start in the morning, you write down a mantra, which you can write on an index card or a sticky note, and you would put it up on your mirror. And she used to put these uh, up on her refrigerator. And so the the mantra that I wrote for patients is, this too shall pass, and I have the strength to get by until it does. Because patience in Musar, it's not about staying calm as much as it is about enduring an unpleasant situation until it passes. So she, um, she put that up, and her kids laughed at her and said, good luck, mom, with that. Um, she was a little bit of a hothead, and she was a... Uh, kind of a rageaholic driver and was always yelling at other cars. Um, And what she decided to do was she said, you know what, Uh, for my action, my one action, I'm going to let every car merge in front of me. I'm going to let every car merge. So she came back two weeks later and she said, Greg, I have become the most patient driver in California. I just let everybody in and suddenly I'm calm and I'm listening to the radio and I'm just enjoying the drive. And not only that, she found that she became more patient with her kids because when we do these practices, when we say the mantra, we are changing our soul. Now, if you're of the spiritual bank, you would say, yeah, we're making small imprints in the soul. And because the soul is changed, we show up differently in different situations. Now, maybe you're more of a neurobiologist, and you're saying that we're rewiring brain pathways by our actions, and that with that new brain pathway, we're showing up differently. From an American Musar perspective, it really doesn't matter. I don't know whether Sharon saw herself on a spiritual quest or on a spiritual journey, but she saw herself on a journey and she took it seriously and she showed up in the world in a more menschy way, which made her life better and made her family's life better.
0: I'm not sure if uh, the, the right way to ask this question is to kind of connect it to one of these soul traits. So it may or may not be, but I'm trying to think about the experience of being overwhelmed. And I don't, I'm not sure if that connects to the soul trait of equanimity or which one of them you kind of see see it as part of. But I think that there's this element of people's experience with Judaism, where it's fundamentally overwhelming. It's like, you know, oh, I thought that Judaism properly, so to speak, was to do X, Y, and Z. And now you're telling me I should also do Musar. And um, and then there's this other uh, version of it that says, um, well, you know, these are actually for people who are not really doing a whole lot of the traditional Jewish stuff, they're not necessarily overwhelmed by Judaism itself, but they're somehow overwhelmed by their sense of what it means to be a good Jew. And and sometimes I feel like it's, you know, it's like, it's almost like, um, and and I feel like maybe you gave an example of this before, but I don't remember what it was exactly. But it's like, um, you know, I could do this thing But, you know, would I really be moving the needle? I mean, it's like, what's the point of doing one piece of Judaism if you think that the whole thing is this big, overwhelming uh, part of it? And and what I really appreciate about what you're doing with Musar is that you're not doing what the Orthodox world might do, which is to say, hey, we should be completely Orthodox. We We should believe in the proper way. We should conduct ourselves in the proper way, according to Jewish law. And we should also do this Musar thing you're saying that you could make your, your whole Jewish practice about only Musar and it would be a good way to be a Jew, I think is is kind of what I'm hearing. and I, And I'd love for you to reflect on that, both in terms of human beings as people, and also I think of Judaism as sort of an organism, both of which have the capacity to be overwhelmed and overwhelming, and that perhaps, you know, in some way we can imagine a sort of institutional Musar that would kind of help Judaism itself figure out a way to uh, be more balanced and, and therefore maybe be more uh, appealing and, and useful to people.
2: I think that Musar is something that everybody could do a way of looking at life and a way of living your life. Like, let me give you an example. Um, I had this giant box. I couldn't get it in my trunk. I put it on the hood of the car next to me while I got my keys out. And somebody came over and started yelling at me, how can you put this on Sheila's car and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, this is an empty cardboard box. It's on a car. What's the big deal? So I, you know, Kept my cool. I apologized, and I wrote a blog post about this. And I realized that okay, if I look at it from a Musar perspective, I could say that part of practicing honor is that I need to respect other people's things. Or part of practicing humility is I shouldn't take more than my fairly allotted space. And that car is somebody else's space. So it helps me uh, gives me a lens to sort of process the world. And yes, it's kind of self helpy and I'm less likely to get someone to um, yell at me in a parking lot in the future and kind of ruin my day over something which is really trivial. But it's also, um, I have an opportunity to bring that into the spiritual realm. You know, we have this commandment, you shall be holy. Nobody defines what that is, but it's actually, you could say, it's, you should kind of be a good dude. You should be a good dad. You know, you should be a You should be a Menchie person. Menchie people don't put their stuff on other people's cars. Like, is it against the law? No. Is it really harmful? No. But if you're going to be like that really outstanding person, of character, don't put it on your car. So I wrote a blog post about this. And all these people wrote to me and said, oh, you shouldn't feel bad about that. Don't be so down on yourself. It was such a a big mistake. And, And the trick about Musar and part of the journey is being comfortable saying, hey, okay, I blew it. I made a mistake. This was a small mistake. Sometimes they make big mistakes. But to say, okay, I I missed the mark, which is one way of translating sin in Judaism, is to miss, okay, I missed the mark this time. I've learned from it. Next time, I'll do differently.
1: So you use the phrase, miss the mark. And I feel like, Jewishly, that phrase is so deeply intertwined with the high holidays. Um, And we met you, um, Dan and I met you initially through... Elul, through the, the month, we called it the on-ramp, the, the month-long on-ramp to the high holidays, where we, um, actually, I mean, part of why we were introduced to you is that the folks we were working with were really intrigued by what it would look like to, to map some of the ideas of Musar onto that period. Um, and what I, what I look at Musar and I see in a certain sense is a question. It's an answer to a question that I asked myself growing up, which was, if this high holiday period is so important, if these 10 days are so important and self-reflection is so important, like why don't we do it the whole year? Um, That was a question for me as a young Jew, like if we mean this, like why aren't we doing it always? And Musar is like, well, ding, ding, ding. um, You're now gonna look inward and think about how to improve on certain character traits all the time. Um, it's, It's like a beautiful lived embodied practice that I think it's like if you took, it's like if you took, I am i don't know why I'm thinking, it's like if you took an episode of a TV show and like slowed it down and spread it out over like a hundred times as long, I don't know. Like you take a, a holiday and you make that holiday not merely its own observance, but you make it a, a model for what you should always be. And that's how I like to conceptualize Shabbat as like for one day we create a world that's at rest and that's sort of peaceful, Shabbat Shalom. And we try not to just have that be one seventh of our time, but try to take that and have it be all the time. Um, so I, I was curious, like, do, do the high holidays, like, take take up a particular bandwidth in this for you? Is is that time of year sort of an exclamation point for your Musa practice? Or does it feel more like, you know what, it's actually just 10 more days, or if you count Elul, 40, 40 more days that I strive to to have look like the rest of my time?
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, I think the High Holidays are an exclamation point, but they've always been an exclamation point for me. Like, that was the only kind of really Jewish thing that I did seriously for a long time, which was looking within. But what we call this process of looking within, the Hebrew word is heshbon hanefesh, accounting of the soul. And I told you about that rabbi who took ben franklin 's work, the book he wrote was called Heshbon Hanefish Counting of the Soul and one part of Musar practice that i didn 't talk, talk about is journaling, which um, I was not a journaler I am in not as frequent as I would like to be journaler, but that's called Heshbon Hanefesh journaling, where that's the third leg of the stool. You have your mantra, you have, okay, how do I act differently during the day? And then it's, how did my patience practice show up in the day? How did my truth, oh wow, I, I had too much truth. I was not listening to somebody else's opinion. I was too insistent on my own opinion today. Okay, I'll write that down. That is my accounting of the soul. And um, both David Jaffe and I have done um, workshops around Musar, workshops around the High Holidays, which is to kind of help. Boy, every year I keep coming up against that same issue. Yep, still pissed off at my dad. Still um, unhappy with my job. Still not going to the gym. And without a practice, you have nowhere to go with that. But if you can slot that into a Musar practice, okay, well, what's one action that I can take today to move towards doing something differently?
0: I guess the piece that I would love to get your thoughts on as we get towards our close is, could you help us understand a little bit about what's the value add of doing this from a Jewish point of view? Like, is there, is there a way in which Musar is a better way to try to improve ourselves than, you know, trying to do the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or, uh, you know, the, the work of Positive Psychology and Martin Seligman. And they also have various journaling practices and things like that. So how do you connect this specific approach of Musar and of Judaism and, and sort of make the case for why it's one that, that we really ought to give it a try?
2: I mean, I I try to avoid the audas. The But I I would say, for me, Musar, as I see it, is a countercultural Jewish tradition, which goes all the way back. And there is this long argument between people who say, doing Torah is enough, and the people who say, you need to do Torah and do acts of kindness. And it even says in the Talmud that one who does Torah without acts of kindness, it's as if they had no God. And that's an emphasis that has been lost and maybe was never even that big a part. It's always been this minority view, but it keeps cropping up at all these different places in Jewish communities all over the world. These people saying, hey, but what about kindness? So I would invite all of us to give this a try and see how might we show up in the world as better people. Because whatever it is that you're trying to do, if you're, tr- if you're trying to fight for social justice, coming as your whole self, being able to um, wholeheartedly and without like your own baggage holding you back is going to make you that much more effective. And if you want to dip into the spiritual realm, it's also going to make you more holy.
1: So we are arcing to the close, and this has been sensational. You have an offer. This is the first time in Judaism Unbound history, as far as I can remember. But you have an offer for our guests that you wanted to voice before we go. So uh, I'll I'll hand it over to you, Greg Marcus. What's your offer to our listeners today?
2: Right. So part of what I I like to do is I like to talk to people one-on-one. And I do one-on-one coaching. And I also just do one-on-one discussions and conversations with people, and it can be about, um, gee, how can Musar enrich my own Jewish experience? Or it might be more, how can Musar help me get unstuck from a situation at work or from a, you know, some anger in my life or a relationship question? So if, if you go to AmericanMusar.com unbound, you can sign up for a free one-hour strategy session or consultation with me where I will listen to your situation and we'll together find a, a musar practice to help you address it.
1: So that's americanmusarcom slash unbound. Awesome. Um, thank you so much, Greg Marcus, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
2: You are very welcome.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you will be in touch with us and we want to call out all the different ways that you can do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at @JudaismUnbound. Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. Before we go, we also wanted to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Support for this episode comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.